Well, 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 good morning, church. Man, um, we just we just sang a crazy thing, didn't we? I mean, I just just notice it for a second, because sometimes I think we can just kind of sing these worship songs and the words are great. And we're like, yes. But when you actually just stop for a second and go, what did I just uh, have come out of my mouth and say uh, that this is what I want or desire or seek for my life to be? Here it is, right? That regardless of whether the circumstances or relational dynamics or resource challenges are awesome or terrible, worthy of praise or not, he is going to get my praise because I don't praise him because something occurred that makes him worthy of my praise. I praise him because he is simply worthy of my praise, right? That's not like the world, just FYI. Like we don't even honor each other and praise each other until we do something honoring or praiseworthy for each other. Otherwise, we kind of disdain each other, right? Uh, the entire planet works that way. Our whole uh, global culture works that way, that you don't just give praise and honor to someone when they are seemingly doing things that are not praiseworthy or honoring. But, but in, in our context, we do. Why? Because we are the people of the in-between. We are a people that belong to a kingdom that our faith, authored by God, has stirred us toward now. A knowing, a clarity, a recognition from God's word by his spirit that our home is a place where all of these things that would cause us to wonder if we should give praise and honor to God will be eliminated, right? So we live there in part. We live as though that is already our home because we are a people belonging to that kingdom. And yet we live in this kingdom that's nothing like that kingdom that has lots of reason not to feel honor and praise toward whatever, right? Especially God who's in control. And we choose by faith to say, I am not living in this kingdom, representing this kingdom, behaving like this kingdom, thinking like this kingdom. I am living in this kingdom, behaving, thinking, and living like the other one, because that's what I belong to. That is an extraordinary and strange thing. And that is our life and our story. This is what scripture continually unpacks for us. Hey, folks. You are the people belonging to God and his kingdom living on planet earth still. While you are here, your life is now no longer about navigating and surviving this planet and this kingdom. It is about representing and bringing about the realities of the other kingdom. Because when those values, realities, and truths of that kingdom are brought here, then the life, light, and freedom that those things bring are brought here also. When we live like the kingdom of God on this planet, the fruit of that is not void. It is a fruit that will always bring about the moving backwards of darkness and death and the bringing about of life and freedom. So every day that we choose to make what we just sang a reality in our lives by the empowerment of the spirit and our faith, we choose to be participants in life, light, and freedom instead of choosing to continue to participate in this kingdom's death, darkness, and bondage, right? That's, that's an, an incredible thing. 
that we would be empowered by God himself to be able to do that because he has authored a faith in us that can do that and empowered us by his spirit that can do that. We can do that. We can do it. We are not people walking around incapable of standing as representatives of the kingdom of God, but we are a people who can choose not to. So the authors of scripture, in particular, in the context we're in now, where Paul is writing to Timothy to instruct the church in Ephesus on what it means to be the church, we are going to see this playing out constantly. People of God, followers of Jesus, people of the kingdom of God, who by faith know what's coming and know who you are, while on this planet, especially in your collective, live this way, because this way is the kingdom of God. This is the values of the kingdom of God. This is the way the kingdom of God will function, does function, is functioning. It's just that we don't live on a planet that is currently representation of the kingdom of God. That will come when the new heaven and the new earth is realized, and then this planet will no longer be infected by the kingdom of death. But in the meantime, here's how you people of God get to live. That's what Paul has been instructing Timothy to instruct the church in Ephesus to then eventually instruct us because God, by his sovereignty made the decision that this particular letter would eventually become a part of the sacred scriptures. In other words, it was not only intended for the church in Ephesus or the surrounding churches, it was intended for them and for us. Wow. So this is a letter to them and a letter to us. That's right. So where have we been? Uh, Paul has been instructing Timothy, remember, uh, he started the letter out. The aim of our charge, this whole letter, is love. Why? Because love is the foundational value system that represents the kingdom of God. God's love for us, our love for each other, our collective love for the world that is lost. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. So everything Paul says to Timothy that he tells Timothy to say to the church is ultimately with the purpose that it would display, represent, and, and, and cause the experience of love one toward another. Love us toward God. Remembering love God toward us. And then uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the middle of the letter, remember there uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, I hope to come soon, but if I'm delayed, the reason I'm writing this letter, the charge is for love, but I'm going to be specific to demonstrate some realities in how love plays out in the behaviors of the church. Because ultimately, uh, you get this all the time, someone behaves towards you in a manner that demonstrates lack of love and they say to you don't worry I love you we kind of go whatever so when we say we love one another and it doesn't translate into behaviors that represent what that would mean then there is an incongruency and our love is rightly called into question but what Paul is saying is we need to love each other this by the way is what that's going to look like 
And this is what it looks like in particular in view of the value system of God's kingdom. And when we love well and love rightly, not according to the culture of the world, but according to the culture of God, then our love is often going to look like a strange and odd thing as it is experienced by a world that has no idea what real love is. And so it is not simply go love. It is, here's what that looks like. And then in chapter four of the book of Timothy, and remember the chapters weren't in the letter. They're just for our benefit, but it helps us kind of remember where in the letter we are. In chapter four, after he says this in chapter three, I want to help you know how to behave. He then encourages Timothy in chapter four. Uh, You're going to need to teach this to them. I'm going to tell you some strange things that are not going to be what the people are going to want to hear. Here's why. Because we do live in this culture on this planet. And when we are asked to live in a way that is opposed to different than or odd in the culture, our expectation is we're going to be treated oddly. And And we're called to the things we don't even like. And so he's, before he even starts saying, so here's what it looks like. He says to Timothy, if you go and teach this to them, that's what a good servant of Christ does, what a good teacher does. So even though I'm asking you to teach things that are going to be a bit shocking to the people, even those who follow God, teach them boldly. And if they just disappear and leave and hate it, don't worry. God already said that would happen to some. Remember, I'm not making that up. He wrote it in there. Hey, some are just going to leave and abandon the faith. So don't see that as a reason not to teach what is good and right. If people are like, that's it, I'm out. This is crazy. Just keep teaching it. And then chapter five, which is where we have been. Chapter five begins the journey of, okay, church, here's how we are to behave. And it plays throughout chapter five on two primary realities because they are the primary spaces in which our relational dynamics on this planet uh, sort of flush out. One, the idea of family, and two, the idea of roles or uh, oversight versus servant serving or authority over following. This is the dynamic of every relationship, uh, marriage relationships, child-parent relationships, uh, uh, employer-employee relationships, master-servant relationships, elder-congregant uh, relationships. It's, it's, it's all like that. And God-us relationship. So this is actually not a a cultural reality of the planet that in God's world, there's no authority and no power only in this world. No, 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 no. In God's world, there is absolute power and absolute authority. But in this world, it is misused, corrupted, uh, terrible. And he's saying, come back to my kingdom and live with these different roles in this dynamic of family with the realities of authority and power in a manner that represents the purpose of authority and power, which is to love each other and serve each other really, really well. I didn't put these things in place so you could see each other in different value systems, lord over each other or undermine each other. I did this so that you can serve each other other in the different necessities of a clear structure of service. That's all. And so what does he do? He starts in chapter five. Hey, folks that are older, folks that are younger, here's how you are to behave toward each other. Why? Because you're family. 
Because you're family. You're not just random people in a church together. You belong to the same king. You are children of the same God. You are now family. Behave like family. And then he moves from there into widows. So at first you're like, man, kind of interesting track, but look what he's doing. The first thing he starts in chapter five is, listen, this is how family works, remember? And you are what? Family. So when you're behaving in the relationships within the church, remember you are behaving like a family. If you don't do that, you're missing the point already. And when a family is caring for each other, those in the family that have unique needs require unique care. Widows, for example, in the church, care for them like you would for family. And part of that, he then instructs, remember, if they have a home family, then their home family doesn't advocate responsibility just to the church. It is a beautiful combination of both work together because family is at home and family is at church. So function in family. When you're talking about the vulnerable versus those who are not vulnerable, here's how it works. When you're talking about the the wise or older or experienced and those that are not, here's how it works. And then the last piece we dealt with was when you're dealing directly with a structure of authority, elders versus congregants that are not opposing one another, but are supposed to serve each other. Already talked to the elders about extensively they're serving the congregation. Now he's talking to the congregation saying, here's how you serve your elders. Honor them when they are doing well, rebuke them when they're not so that they might do well, right? Both are to help them do Well, because when they do well, then we do well and it honors God. And don't you love them? Don't you want them to do well? I mean, come on. So he does that. So you're with me so far. That's where we're at. Now we're jumping into the next section of this book and we're going to see where he goes because what's going to happen is we're about to close out today this space of what we call chapter five. We're actually going to be in chapter six, but they kind of put it in a weird place. They do that sometimes. This section between where he says, Timothy, teach these things, even if they're hard. And even if people leave, it doesn't matter. Teach them because that's what a good teacher does. Then the behaviors. And then he's going to say, listen, if anyone teaches other than these things, that's not good. So he's bookending, teach these things teach these things. And in between, he's telling us what he's teaching, right? We are closing out the teach these things part. You with me so far? Let's go see how it closes out. Uh, First Timothy chapter six, verse one. Uh, We are finishing up the things that he's teaching. Remember, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of everything the church needs to know. It is simply laying the foundations of how we behave with each other as family and within the structures of authority that God has set up, neither abusing the authority for those in authority, nor undermining authority for those in the positions to serve one another and serve those in authority as those in authority serve those who are serving each other. For the aim is love. That's right. And our kingdom does not work that way. So that's why all this feels a little bit like hard to navigate. What does it mean? Because we are just absolutely not used to this. But what a joy it is that God's like, get used to it. Because these are the people you are now. And this is the kingdom you belong to now. And you watch the fruit of this come out. So let's see where he goes next. He's just finished out the reality of elders 
an authority and those that are under their authority. And then verse one of chapter six, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teachings may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And then the next part of verse two is teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, it does, it does not agree. So do you see there that the last piece of the here are the behaviors just came to a close because his next sentence is going to be these things about older, younger, widows, elders, and masters, bond servants, teach these things. And if you don't teach these things rightly, you're wrong, right? So here he closes out and he closes out with what seems to me at least an odd decision to jump toward. Here's why. Because on the one hand, everything he's been dealing with so far as it relates to relational dynamics have been within the church structure. You with me? In the church, those who are older and younger deal with each other this way. In the church, if they are widows, deal with them this way. Unless they have family outside the church, then deal with them this way. In the church, elders uh, deal with them this way. And, and now he goes like this. And while I'm at it, uh, bond servants uh, treat your masters this way. He doesn't even mention in the church, when you are at church, bond servants treat your masters. He just, he just leaps out of the church into this like, and by the way, out there, bond servants, masters. Sort of a strange leap, isn't it? And not only is it a strange leap, but super strange topic to pick. Of all the topics to pick to, to leap out with, you got to go here. Slaves and masters. Whoo, right? So let's, let's just start here as a reminder so that at least as we jump into this, we don't misunderstand the context in the very nature of what these words mean. So when we hear words like bond servant, or just to be honest, so we don't sugarcoat this, this word in the Greek can be tra uh, translated often as bond slave. So the word slave is in this sentence and the word master is in the sentence. What does that solicit in you? Hatred, disdain, slavery is terrible because is it? Trick question. No, it's not a trick question. You guys were dead right. Yes, it's terrible. It's totally horrible. It is, it is unjustifiable in any sense. And it is opposed to everything that God's kingdom stands for. So it is right when you hear the word slave and master that you're like, oh, problem. The trouble we run into is that when we are dealing with thousands of years of a span of time, it is not always appropriate to apply the same experience, feeling, and reality to words that were 2,000 years ago as we can to the same meaning of those words today. Sometimes we can, but it is necessary for us if we're going to understand rightly what anything means from the past that we go back into that past context and do a deep dive on what those words might have represented during that time. And when you go back into history, here's what you realize about the words bond slave 
and master. That sometimes during the time of Paul, they meant the same thing we hate. Sometimes when you were referring to slave and master in Paul's time, it was that horrid thing where one person owned another, devalued them, saw them as property, didn't care, didn't see them as human, and overlorded over them, misusing them in every way. That was a part of the meaning of these words sometimes. The trouble is these words meant other things other times. And so when Paul is writing, you can't just say he meant that. Therefore, he is affirming that. He's saying something that we might say in our culture because those same words would have applied in these other contexts where, for example, a master of a household paid a bond servant or bond slave of a household because that bond slave who once was more obligated than a bond slave voluntarily obligating themselves was being paid to buy his freedom. Now I'm gonna use some different language. It doesn't translate exactly, so don't receive this as a softening of any human relationship where there's obligation because it gets tricky, right? But the truth is we live in a society that has multiple obligations as well toward each other in multiple spaces. My daughter, Rahel, uh, is preparing to do ROTC when she goes to college next year. She's going to do ROTC for four years and they're going to pay for her college if everything works out well. That's wonderful. Then she's going to spend four years after college doing what? Being in the military, she doesn't get to decide after college, you know what, I've changed my mind. You obligate yourself to those four years. Might we use the word master and bondservant? If we were talking in Paul's time, those would have been appropriate words to use in that context. Because those words also meant the bad way, didn't mean they always meant the bad way. So Paul can use these words in that context, in the understanding of what these people would have heard. So remember, first of all, that this context is unique from the context we would experience in that. Even in terms of employer-employee in our culture, there are obligations to those things. You have the option to get out, but what are you really working toward? Let's use our culture for a second. You're working for someone who's paying you to do things for them or their business so that they can advance, and in paying you, you are building a, we call it retirement, so that you can be free. No, legit. I'm not like, like that's legitimately what we're trying to do. I have to work because if I don't work, I don't eat. And at some point, if I've collected enough, I can be free of needing to work and I can choose to work. So I bump into plenty of people that in spaces like Publix or other places that have retired, they got bored and they're like, I don't have to work, but I'm, this is crazy. I'm going to sit around at home all day. So I'm working because I like working, but you are free. See what I'm saying? We want to divorce these concepts from each other, but they're not, they're not supposed to be divorced. In Paul's time, these words would have applied rightly to contexts like this. And specifically, bond servant or bond slave, when that word bond is attached, Paul is now speaking in a very unique context that is defined where he's saying a person, regardless of how they became a bond servant, a person who at some point made the decision to tell the master, 
their boss, master, whatever he was or she was before, you have been so good to me, my well-being and my family, this is their home, their space, may I continue working for you even though I've retired. And again, not meaning to use that language to minimize some of the complications, just giving you a context to wrap your mind around. And then the, the, the person might have said, absolutely, we love having you. I'll keep paying you and you'll keep staying. But now it is a, a, a little different of a relationship. But in that culture, when you said, I'm going to do that, it was not like for as long as I'd like, you were saying, may I spend the rest of my life under your protection? Then the master became a patron. And the patron was someone who still had authority over the bondservant, but in a different way. Paul is saying in this context, hey, in that beautiful, complicated family dynamic, uh, this is what we need. Folks, if you are the bondservant, remember which kingdom you belong to. Uh, we need to treat those who are our masters in the same way we would treat our master Jesus. There's a reminder there. And then he, he goes on to say, and those who are brothers or believers, don't let the fact that they're believers give you reason to treat them with less honor because they're obligated to treating you well. What do I mean by that? Remember that if you are a master over a bondservant and you are in the church, Paul instructed you to make sure that from now on, you do not in any way see your bondservant as less than you. You treat them with the same honor you would treat a brother because they are a brother. Paul already said that. And this was shocking and brand new information to any context of their culture. So if you were in the servant space, that suddenly gave you in the church this whole new world. Were you like, oh, my master that I thought had no obligation toward me. And if my master was good to me, it was because they were good and kind. The, the gospel, the kingdom of God just obligated them to treat me a certain way. What if they don't? Well, then I get to treat them badly too. You see how that dynamic can play? Now, this is what Paul throws down here. Why? Why does Paul leap out of the context of the church into the context of the broader scope of authority and power and vulnerability and servitude, all of that stuff? And why does he leap into the most extreme context of it all? He could have picked husbands and wives, children and parents, something softer, something not like slaves and masters. <sighs> why would he do this? Well, actually, it, it makes perfect sense in what Paul, by the Spirit of God, is trying to remind us of in both themes that have run chapter 5. What were the two themes? Fam family, good, 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 and authority, or the realities of the structure of oversight versus serving, right? That's the themes that he's been running. And now he takes this little paragraph outside the church and it's almost like I might do as a communicator using an extreme example to remind you that what I'm talking about in the church that feels a bit complicated in the most complicated versions of that kind of dynamic, we still belong to which kingdom? God's kingdom. And we still behave like we belong to which kingdom? 
God's kingdom. We don't get to say, I'm going to behave like God's kingdom in the easy ones. But by the time I get to employer, employee, boss, um, uh, and, and follower, uh, master and bondservant, there I have the right to behave differently. He just leaps into this extreme example and says, remember, in how many spaces do we need to live like people of the kingdom? All of them. What he's not saying is, if you are a slave that is devalued by your master, owned by them in that terrible version that we know of as the slavery we encounter, it's totally fine. Don't do anything about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in a relationship in the family unit that was common in this space, Ephesus, one third of the people in Ephesus would have been considered in the category of bond slave slave. In other words, that was the employed world. If you go into that world and say, kill it all, you've just killed one third of Ephesus. See, that's the dynamics we don't know. So in this, he's going in the typical family unit. Here's how it goes. Now, here's what's really, really cool about this. Why would Paul use this example in this way in this letter? Remember when you're studying scripture, no book stands alone. No verse stands alone. No passage stands alone. If you ever study scripture and you think what you're reading right in front of you is divorced from the rest of scripture, you are bound to go badly wrong in your understanding of what it means. And at a minimum, you will miss so much of its beauty. This letter is being written somewhere in AD 63-64. And there were three other letters written a year earlier in AD 62, 63, somewhere in there, that were sent by one person to a region of the world. Those three letters were Ephesians. What church was that sent to? Ephesus. Colossians sent to Colossae and Philemon sent to Philemon, who was in the church in Colossae, who had a bondservant, Onesimus, who had uh, escaped, run away, broken contract, whatever you want to call it, and taken off to Rome, become a believer under Paul's tutelage. And Paul was now sending Onesimus back to Philemon to reconcile, even though Philemon, I mean, On Onesimus said, when I get back there, I obligate myself to my contract again, and he's going to demand it over me. And Paul says, I, he might, but this is the way the kingdom of God works. So you're going back. So these three letters went out a year earlier than this. How fresh are they in the minds of the churches that Paul is writing to Timothy to talk to? Very fresh. And what did he unpack in the letter of Ephesians in an entire section? Our behavior within the family structures, not within the church structure, within the family structures. And do you remember what he said in Ephesians? Husbands and wives deal with each other this way. Children and parents deal with each other this way. And then what was the third category? masters and bond servants deal with each other this way. That was in the letter of Ephesians. And it was in that letter that he made that first ridiculous, culturally unacceptable statement that masters are supposed to think of their bond servants as brothers and sisters, therefore treating them as equals, even though the role doesn't necessarily have to change. They can still serve you, you can still serve them, but you cannot look at them as less because they are not in your position. Our positions in life, elder, congregant, master, bondservant, husband, wife, parent, child, never, ever, 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 ever should give us the reason to look down on each other. 
or to think less of each other. That is the core of slavery. Slavery isn't simply about me owning another person. It is how I think about another person. And in our nation, we know this because even after slavery was gone, when I would walk up to another person and call them boy, because though they were a grown man, that was slavery. It was an attitude of you are less than me because you are in a position or part of a culture or have a particularity that is not mine. And the scripture says, don't you ever, ever do that. Because every human being was created not by you or me, not for you or me, but by God for his glory. And he values every human being with absolute equality. And the only one that determines value is him. And he already told us what that value is. So if you value a fellow human any less than that, you are in direct, absolute violation, disobedience, and standing against God himself. Woo! Leave this planet and try that one on. So what he's saying here is, in these relationships, if they are family and you see each other as family, then whatever the roles you happen to be in in a particular space in your life, they may transition. You are going to deal in those roles as though you're dealing toward family because you are, and now your entire view and attitude changes. If I am servant, I get to serve my master. If I'm master, I get to protect and serve my servant. Servant master is irrelevant. Those are roles. These are two beautiful humans. That's what Ephesians did. But it was speaking into a culture that couldn't possibly fathom all of this yet. And so in Ephesians, you can imagine a year later that there has been probably likely a bit of a a struggle on how this plays out. So here, when Paul puts this in, here's all the things he's doing at once. Watch this. One, he is putting in something that a year earlier, he closed out the family talk about, right? Reminding them that this talk in chapter five of elders and congregants of widows in the church of older and younger folks is all about Family, because the last thing he says is the big thing he said in Ephesians that he closed family out that seemed odd then too. Husbands and wives, children and parents, bond slaves and masters. So he's reminding us, what I'm trying to tell you is, when should you behave like the kingdom of God? Always. And the people that are believers around you are your family. Treat them as such. That's why in here he also says, hey, bond servants, treat any master you have in a manner worthy of Jesus. But those that are believers, don't dishonor them on the account that they are believers. See what the slaves, are, would, the, the slaves bond servants were doing? Since I now know, because I'm in the church in Ephesus as a servant, I know what Paul obligated to you, you to. I don't have to treat you with honor anymore. And Paul's like, that's not what I was trying to say. I wasn't saying when one uh, husband and wife, for example, a parent and child doesn't treat you the way they ought. I'm not saying to you, well, then you're off the hook because you are representing God's kingdom and you individually human being, as I individually human being are called to represent God's kingdom. Whether the other person in that relational dynamic is or is not, is not a relevancy as to whether I should or should not. Now, don't get me wrong. I just want to throw this in because it's 
if there are relational dynamics in any relationship that are on those extremes of unhealthy abuse and so on, what the Bible is not saying is stay in it and just bear it. What the Bible is saying is you don't get to start treating other people as less than, different than, or ungodly just because they're doing that to you. Make other plans, solve it other ways, but don't turn into a person that represents this kingdom. So Paul, first of all, is wrapping up the whole family idea, choosing this passage to end this whole thing. Second, not only is he wrapping up the family idea, but he is also saying in this version, in any relational dynamic church, inside or outside of the church, what kingdom do we represent? God's kingdom. And how should we behave? God's kingdom. In every extreme, meaning in every societal extreme that is within the dynamic of human relationship. When it is in those terrible versions, then there's other instruction in scripture. So where does that leave us here? As we close out this section of how we behave toward each other in the church, we are reminded that this entire letter, this charge toward us is for love. Our behaviors we're called into is to demonstrate love because we represent the kingdom of God. And so what it affords us, calls us into is to evaluate every relationship we're in and to say in those relational dynamics, in our cultural context, how does the culture behave in those relationships and how would a person of the kingdom of God behave? So how does our culture behave in the relationship of employee-employer? Not like the kingdom of God, I can tell you that. I tell you, when we honor those who employ us, when they do things worthy of praise and honor, they give us giant bonuses, they take care of us, they pay us better. Oh, my boss is awesome. And then when they don't, what do we do? I pray every day, God, get me out. And then I go to all my friends and I say, there's no human being on the planet that's more evil and terrible than my boss. Welcome to the culture. But the kingdom of God says, serve your boss no less because your boss is a jerk than you would if he wasn't or she wasn't a jerk. If you're being abused in those extreme versions, get out. But if you're not, it's just a hard place to work and your boss is just a jerk. How should you behave while you're employed there? Like a person that sees past this kingdom into the next and remembers who we belong to. And we love not for our sake or for even their sake. We love for the sake of the glory of Jesus and the expansion of his kingdom. And we anticipate that when we love, we bring freedom even to the person who is unloving toward us. What a beautiful way to end this little section for Paul to say, followers of Jesus, whatever relationships you're in, inside or outside of the church, the charge from God to you is, love and you should behave in a manner that honors and serves and cares for those placed before you to serve, honor, and care for. If you are serving them as servant to master or servant to authority, serve them. If you are master or authority over people, serve them. And anytime either of you stops serving the other 
and stands in your position to undermine or abuse the other, you are no longer living in a manner worthy of the gospel and in a manner that represents the kingdom of God. And that is the safety net. Suddenly positions don't matter nearly as much as our culture makes them matter because no matter which one you're in, your calling is exactly the same. Value everyone equally, treat everyone as family, and serve everyone under your care or in your spaces to serve. Let's show the world how God's kingdom functions and not how this kingdom functions. And then Timothy's going to, I pause and I say to Timothy, now go teach this. And if anyone teaches differently, they're wrong. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. And this amazing letter that you didn't only bother to give to Paul, to give to Timothy, to give to Ephesus, but that you bothered to place it in scripture along with Philemon and Ephesians and Colossians so that we can see the total scope of this beautiful calling and charge to love one another and treat each other as family, regardless of the roles in which we find ourselves within the family or church unit whether we are husband and wife, one or the other, child or parent, uh, bond servant or master, whether we are elder or congregant, irrelevant to your calling to love each other, serve each other, treat each other like family, and be about the well-being of each other for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom. God, would you reorient us in this place to begin to think utterly differently of our roles in these different dynamics, not as roles we are trying to uh, find or get to so that we are in the role of power and authority so that we are not vulnerable and dependent on other humans so that we can be safe and abandon all of that notion, though there is certainly reason to feel it and to begin to place our faith where it belongs in your story for us and your kingdom and its future that we might live a life as a people, collectively and individually, serving one another, honoring one another, protecting one another, regardless of whether we are serving, honoring, and protecting from authority to those we are leading or from servant spaces to those who are in authority over us. God, if all of us in our different roles live to serve, protect, and honor the other, man, this is gonna feel like your kingdom. And the world is going to be in awe of how we function, both inside these walls and outside of them. <sighs> Help us, because this feels a bit impossible at times. Help us. We want to honor you. We want to live for your kingdom, because in that way, our lives are worship to you. And we demonstrate that you are worthy of our lives, our worship, regardless of what circumstance we find ourselves in. Because by faith, we know that the new earth and the new heaven is coming and every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more and there will be no more wait and no there will only be yes and the lavishing of your kindness upon us for the ages to come remind us God of who we belong to and what kingdom we are part of and empower us to live your kingdom on this planet and to bring it about so that life light and freedom might go forth and save and redeem this dead place and the people in it just as you have saved and redeemed us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.